this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please know this. Please know that my aim this morning is to lift your spirits in light of God's precious and powerful word. But, <laughs> but allow me first to ask you a question from the other end of the spectrum. Lifting spirits, right? This is the other end of the spectrum. What is the worst thing that ever happened to you? What is the worst thing that ever happened to you? No, you don't need to answer out loud. You don't need to tell a neighbor or raise your hand. Just remember, just stop and remember for a moment. The worst thing, the worst circumstance, the worst feelings. Understandably, in all likelihood, it's something you'd rather not remember, right? It's something you'd rather not remember. In fact, your mind, as it's prone to do, may spend a lot of its background processing power keeping that memory contained and separated from your everyday thoughts and feelings just so you can operate and do what you need to do on that day, this day. When it comes to Joseph, the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham. When it comes to Joseph, there's no ambiguity about the worst thing that ever happened to him. We know what it was. His own brothers badly mistreated him and then sold him into slavery and that betrayal then landed him in a foreign country far away from his own family where eventually he was falsely accused by his master's wife and injustice that finally landed him in an Egyptian prison cell. How, how do you even begin to process that kind of years-long Trauma, betrayal, slavery, oppression, injustice, captivity, confinement, despair. How do you begin to process something like that? What might Joseph have concluded at each new low point of the ordeal that he went through? What might he have concluded about his life? His relationships, his choices, his worth, his future, his God. What must have passed through his mind? Please hear this. Wonderfully, the most stunning thing about Joseph's story was not the worst thing. Did you hear that? The most stunning thing about Joseph's story was not the worst thing. And the worst thing was bad, wasn't it? What I just described to you, that series of events, as those dominoes fell, 
That's not the most stunning thing about Joseph's story. It was the fact that God was at work in and through the worst thing. Or to put it another way, take a look on the screen, the best thing was that God was in the worst thing. The best thing was that God was in the worst thing. Let's unpack that together this morning by looking at Genesis 45. You may be there already in your Bibles. Look with me at verses 4 through 8. So when Joseph, who they only knew as the Egyptian governor, is finally reunited with his brothers over 20 years after their betrayal, 20 to 22 years later after they first sold him to those slave traders, He's with them and he shares with them the best thing about this new perspective on the worst thing that ever happened to him. Look with me at verses 4 through 8 of Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He unpacks that statement. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here for the third time, he says this. It was not you, it was God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Let's stop there. As Joseph makes clear to his brothers, if he had not ended up in Egypt, he would not now be in the unique position he was in to help them. In fact, to save them in the midst of this devastating seven-year famine that had gripped the entire region. But notice that Joseph is not ambiguous about how the worst thing was also the best thing, is he? He's not ambiguous about it. He's clear. It was, verse 5, God who sent me before you to preserve your life. It was God who sent me. Verse 7, God sent me before you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was God. Notice what Joseph does not do here. He doesn't chalk things up to luck or happenstance, does he? Wow, dudes, I had like 10 lucky breaks, and let me explain to you what happened. Right? It really worked out for me. I was fortunate. Now, notice what Joseph, so, so notice what he's not doing. He's also not quoting some Egyptian version of the saying, if life gives you lemons, make 
lemonade, right? If, if life gives you palm fronds, don't make palm juice. Or I don't know what the Egyptians would say. He's not giving them that. He's not saying things like, well, you know what? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? High five. Yeah, that I kind of endured and I got through it. He knows his position is not the result of his hard work. It's not the result of his cleverness. He's not claiming that or anything like that. It is all of God. All of it. Let me mention to you, as we think about this passage, let me quickly mention three observations about this passage and its context, okay? First of all, when Joseph encourages them in verse 5 to not be distressed, do you see that? Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. He is not suggesting there that they be unrepentant over what they did to him when he was 17. That's not what he's saying. No, in fact, starting in chapter 42, Joseph has been testing his brothers over a number of chapters. Do you remember this as you read this week? He's been testing his brothers, and that testing has revealed both their contrition regarding what happened to Joseph and their concern for their father and their concern for their youngest brother. They've changed over time. And this is what Joseph is looking for in them. That's what he was hoping to see in them. So in verse 5, I believe he's simply saying, no longer be distressed or angry with yourselves. Okay? That time's done. It's time to, to move on into a new phase here, brothers. Second, second observation about what we just saw in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 45. On that same topic, when Joseph tells them in verse 5 that God sent me, notice it doesn't change the previous phrase. You sold me here. Are both true? Yes. Both are true. You guys sold me here, but God sent me. Both are true at exactly the same time. One doesn't change the other. The fact that God was at work in and through the worst thing that ever happened to Joseph does not somehow make the brothers' betrayal okay. What they did to him was wrong. It was unconscionable. It was ugly. It was morally repugnant. It was selfish. It was petty. And none of that has changed based on what Joseph is telling them here. Later later in Genesis, when the brothers were concerned that he had not really forgiven them, Joseph restates that best thing in these words. Take a look. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. You see, it hadn't changed. They truly had intended evil against them. The fact that, the fact, the guilt of their evil intentions was not washed away by the goodness of God's purposes. 
both are true. But thankfully, and we can all rejoice in this, their evil intentions could never overcome God's purposes. Amen? Their evil intentions could never overcome God's good purposes. Third, here's a third observation about what we just looked at together. The source of Joseph's new perspective on his suffering was not simply speculation about what God seemed to be doing. The source of Joseph's perspective on his suffering was divine revelation. It was divine revelation, wasn't it? The the clearly divine favor that we talked about last time, the clearly divine favor that Joseph enjoyed as both a slave and a prisoner, that favor that everyone could see in his life, like, man, dude, this dude is blessed. This guy is, this guy has got it going on. He's got something on his side here because everything he touches is like turns to gold. Everyone could see that. They recognized that. Joseph understood that as well. But that fact was even more clearly confirmed by supernatural dreams that were first given to Pharaoh's officials. You remember that? Pharaoh's officials were given these dreams and then Pharaoh himself received dreams. Now, it would have been obvious to anyone that not only did these dreams accurately predict the future because they did they told they said what was going to happen before it even happened but those dreams also paved the pathway for joseph's rise to power and joseph knew the source of this supernatural revelation we know that he knew the source of this supernatural revelation when pharaoh suggested that joseph had the power to interpret dreams as if he was some kind of soothsayer, you know, some kind of sorcerer, Joseph responded this way. He said, it is not in me. And I think it might be on there. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You want an interpretation? God will give you one. Not me. I'm just the the channel only, the vessel for bringing you God's word. Three observations about the passage. Now, it would be completely understandable at this point if someone were to say, okay, interesting, but that's Joseph. It was so long ago. It it was so long ago. His story was clearly special. It was unique. What does this story have to do with my story today? I think if... Christians 2,000 years ago were to question Paul in this same way. I think about Joseph's story, which took place almost 2,000 years before their time, (laughs) right? 2,000 years ago of Christians that were saying to Paul, yeah, Paul, Joseph, yeah, great, but what does that have to do with us? Well, he would have gone back another 2,000 years in terms of that story, and the apostle would have taught them, he would have likely have responded with something like he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Turn there, if you would, in your Bibles, Romans chapter 8. Look there. I know that you know this. Many of you know this verse already. 
But if we want to get into the mind of Paul and understand what did he think about the principles that we're talking about in terms of Joseph's life, we can find that same idea expressed here in chapter 8 of Romans, his letter to the Romans, verse 28. This is what Paul writes. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now hold on to that word purpose if you would. Do you recognize the MO here? You know what an MO is? Modus operandi, right? The way somebody does something, the pattern. Do you recognize this pattern here? This, this MO? This, that Paul, the, the one that Paul is talking about here is clearly the God of Joseph. This is Joseph's God, isn't it? Look at how he's working. This is Joseph's God, the one who can make all things, even the worst things, work together for good. That's this God. But notice who Paul points to as the beneficiaries here. Just Joseph? 2,000 years earlier? No, no. For those who love God. And it's clear from Romans chapter 8 that Paul is addressing all genuine Christians as those who love God, right? So the God of Joseph is our God. The God of Joseph is working in our lives in the way he worked in Joseph's life. We are called according to his purpose. Therefore, if you are a born-again disciple of Jesus this morning, then Paul wants to remind you that the God of Joseph is your God. He's the God to whom you pray. It's the same God. And His work hasn't changed. His amazing power, His amazing purposes have not changed. What does all of this mean? It means the best thing is that God was in your worst thing. You thought about that a few minutes ago, didn't you? Your worst thing. As I asked you opening the lesson up this morning, the message up this morning, you thought about that. And maybe you didn't want to think about it, but you did. I pushed and prodded you to get you to bring that to mind. And maybe that was hard. Maybe it was painful. But God has something amazing to say to you today. He wants you to know that 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 worst thing is actually the best thing because he's in it. He's always been in it, no matter what it was. There's not any worse thing that any of you could tell me this morning that would change this. There's not any worse thing that anyone in this world could say that would change this fact if they belong to Christ, if they are called according to his purpose. But but you don't know, but pastor, you don't know what I'm going to tell you. I don't really need to know what you're going to tell me. There's nothing you could ever tell me that's so bad that it's going to change this truth. Is it always easy to accept and easy to think through? No, it's not. 
But by God's grace, we can receive this truth and then find in the weeks and months and years later that God helps us understand or God helps us to make peace with what we do not understand in light of this truth. This also means that God, by means, if we're looking to the God of Joseph, we also know here that he's instructing us in this way. It means God, by means of divine revelation, wants to give you a new Joseph-like perspective on your worst thing. He wants to change the way that you think about it. He wants to equip you. He wants to equip you or, or give you that perspective on what you've endured or maybe on what you're presently enduring. Or he wants to equip you for what you will soon endure through this word. To be clear, here's what I'm saying. He does not want you to forget or bury or deny or rationalize or minimize what you've endured. Why do I say that? Because that's what we're prone to do. We're prone to do those things, aren't we? I just want to forget about it. Or it wasn't that bad. Or maybe I dreamed it all up. Who knows? That's what we're prone to do. He does not want you to do that. He wants you to not only remember that worst thing, he wants you to re-see it with a new perspective. One that is informed by the goodness of his, what word did Paul use? Purpose. God called you for a purpose. We who are called according to his purpose. So how do we do that? How do we re-see? How do we get this new perspective on our worst thing? Well, as I mentioned before, as we saw in Joseph's story, we need divine revelation. We need God to show us this. If you look at Romans 8.28, you may notice something about what Paul says here. The verse is somewhat generic. Do you see that? It simply says that all things, kind of a big, broad, generic term there, all things, including your worst thing, my worst thing, work together for Good. Just, again, a generic kind of phrase. Work together. Well, what does that mean for good? <laughs> Give me more specifics, Paul. What do you mean for my good or for good? It doesn't even say my good. It just says for good. Can the context help us here? That's always the first place that we start. Can the context help us here? It absolutely can. But before we look at that context, allow me to pull in another of Paul's letters. Now you're thinking, Pastor, why are you jumping all over the Bible here? Are you crazy? Let's interpret it in the context. We are going to do that, but we're going to look at another of Paul's letters because Paul's different letters give us different opportunities to understand how he thought, to understand what he knew, and you can see him develop ideas across multiple letters of things that he thought about the Word of God, the grace of God, the power of God, about living a righteous life, a holy life. You can see that from multiple letters. I would love to share with you this morning from Second Corinthians, another of Paul's letters. And I want to do that because Paul touches on this same idea that we're talking about this morning, and he actually provides more specifics in terms of God's good purpose in our suffering. 
It's like he takes that word good from Romans 8.28 and he just unpacks it into different like explanations of, oh, do you want to know how it's actually for good? Let me give you some different examples of how this is for good, how it is for your good. So look with me. I'll put them up on the screen here. If you want to go to 2 Corinthians, you're more than welcome to. You don't have to. I'll put the verses up on the screen. Let me share with you some verses that can help us unpack that word good, the good that God is accomplishing through even the hardest and most painful circumstances of your life. Let's start in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Take a look. This is what Paul writes. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters in Corinth, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. No doubt about what he's talking about here. He's talking about suffering. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is not a this is not an emotional or circumstantial paper, paper cut, my friends. <laughs> this is real deep suffering. Look at how Paul is describing it here. Indeed, if, if you don't believe me, listen as Paul goes on. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So if this isn't Paul's worst thing, then it's pretty bad still, isn't it? The situation he found himself in here. But that, that suffering, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So there's an insight for us, right? There's insight number one. Take a look on the screen. Insight number one. God's good purpose in our suffering teaches us to rely on Him and not ourselves. What if the worst thing that you went through gave you the very best thing, which was teaching you to rely on God and not yourself? Could there be a greater good for a creature to be taught how to rely firmly and fully on his or her Creator? That's an amazing thing. As Solomon wrote, take a look, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in Him. Why does God want us to rely on Him in the midst of our suffering? Because He has power as, verse 9, the God who raises the dead. That's not only reassurance in light of God's power, it's also reassurance in light of God's plan. When we see no way out of our darkness in that worst time, in that worst thing, in that worst circumstance, when we see no way out of our darkness, one way or another, God will always shine His miraculous lights. That's a guarantee in Jesus. Even if you die, that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. God is the God who raises the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus secures our resurrection. We can be sure of it. So we can face unafraid anything that comes our way if we are relying on God and not ourselves. 
God using suffering in this way for our good. Another gem of divine revelation is actually found just a few verses earlier in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. This is, in fact, how Paul introduces his discussion regarding suffering. His own suffering and their suffering. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. We know what kind of affliction he's about to talk about, right? Explain in Asia. The one he felt so utterly despaired, they despaired even to the point of death, felt so utterly burdened. He says, God has comforted him. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's insight number two. Take a look. Insight number two. God's good purpose in our suffering brings us a comfort that we are called to pass along. We are called to receive that comfort in our suffering and pass it along. It is part of God's good design in our suffering. It is good for you to experience God's comfort. Full stop. In your affliction, in your suffering, in your hardship, it is good for you to experience God's comfort. And I pray that if you are struggling this morning, you are experiencing His comfort in abundance. And I pray that God would use us to encourage you in your suffering with God's comfort. But it is even better for you to take that comfort and use it to comfort others. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. Even better? Even better. It's even better for you to take that comfort and pass along to use it to comfort others. That's not a suggestion. I'm not saying this is a suggestion that you ignore your hurt and distract yourself by serving others. Yeah, I'm having a tough time, but I'm going to take this comfort like you said, Pastor. I'm going to pass along to somebody else. I'm going to keep myself busy in serving other people. I've got a meal. I've got a casserole to bring to somebody this week. I've got a blah, 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 blah. But you're not dealing with your hurts. That's not good. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about receiving comfort from God and then passing along. Receiving it truly and truly passing along to others who need it. If suffering can make us more others focused. If it can help us move further away from a me-centered mentality. The me-centered mentality that we're always battling with. If that suffering can move us towards others, that others-focused mentality and perspective, and closer to godliness, then brothers and sisters, that is certainly for our eternal good. Maybe the worst thing became the best thing because God used it to turn your attention to others and equip you to serve them in a unique and powerful way with the comfort that you receive from God. If we actually jump ahead in this letter over to chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 8 through 9, we find yet another insight. Take a look at the screen here. Chapter 12, verses 8 through 9, we find this. Paul writes in these well-known verses, 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this affliction, this thorn that Paul is talking about here. This affliction, praying that it would leave me. But he, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We discover in these verses insight number three, don't we? Take a look. Insight number three. God's good purpose in our suffering helps us experience more of Christ's power. Now, to be fair, this is in some sense just an expansion of insight number one, isn't it? They, they kind of go together. But think about what's emphasized in this expansion. The absolute sufficiency of God's grace in any and every situation you face. That's a good emphasis, isn't it? The absolute sufficiency of God's grace. And what's emphasized here is the pathway to experiencing that strength by means of your weaknesses. We don't like weaknesses, do we? We don't even like the word, let alone somebody pointing out our weaknesses. But take a look at what Paul's telling us here. Did you notice the conclusion at which Paul arrives in the second half of 2 Corinthians 12, 9? He is not going to simply admit to his weaknesses. Yeah, you got me, Jesus. You got me, Lord. I admit my weaknesses. I admit I'm frail. I'm needy. I'm broken. I admit it. He's not just doing that, is he? He's going to boast in his weaknesses. He's going to boast in his weaknesses. And why in the world would he do that? In order to more fully experience the power or strength of Christ in his life. What kind of heavenly equation is this or formula is this? Do you see what he's saying here? It is a boastful attitude toward our weaknesses that nurtures a humble attitude towards the strength of Jesus in us. I'm going to say that again. It is a boastful attitude toward your weakness, weaknesses that nurtures a humble attitude towards the strength of Jesus in your life. If you want to experience more of the power of Christ in your life, get busy boasting about your weaknesses. Trumpet them loudly. Put them out in front. Don't be ashamed of them. No, boast about them. Make it clear in how you live and how you speak that you are weak and you will see the strength of Jesus move to the forefront. And surely, brothers and sisters, experiencing more of Christ's power in my life has to be good. It has to be part of that good, doesn't it? That Romans chapter 8, verse 28 talks about. This has to be some aspect of it. But let's rewind for a moment. I'm going to share one more with you, one more insight from 2 Corinthians. 
Let's go back to chapter 4. Chapter 4 where we find a final but related insight to this number 3. Look with me at what Paul reveals in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. Take a look on the screen here. He writes this, But we have this treasure. We have this treasure. What he means is new life through the Holy Spirit. Uh, as he's talked about at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. We have this new life through the Holy Spirit in jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted. There's the word again. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also be manifested in our bodies. What is Paul describing here? What is he talking about? First, he's describing how, chapter 4, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. He's talking about the worst things, isn't he? He's talking about the hurt, the heaviness, the struggle. He's talking about that suffering. But his main point here is heavenly, not just heavy. And this insight, number 4, insight number 4, flows right out of our third insight. And here it is. God's good purpose in our suffering is for the strength of Christ to be visible to everyone through us. To be visible in our lives. What do we have here? We have another others-focused aspect to God's sovereign work even through our worst moments. Those around us as we've talked about already this morning, need light, don't they? They need true light. They need God's light. They need to see treasure that is clearly not of us since we are just jars of clay. There's nothing special about us. We're just jars of clay. But that treasure is so obvious in contrast to us. They need to see that. But surely it is also for our good. It is for our good. It is for your good as well. When God shines the light of Christ through you so that others can see His power. Amen? It's for their good, but it's also for our good to be used in that way by God. Okay. Now, look back down at Romans chapter 8. Having kind of investigated the thinking of Paul using 2 Corinthians to help us in Paul's, what we could call Paul's theology of suffering, what he thought about suffering and about the sovereignty of God in our suffering, we come back to Romans 8 and we look at the context here because we've been thinking about this generic word good that's included in Romans 8.28. As I asked before, can the context help us better understand that generic word good? 
The answer was yes. The answer is yes. Let me show you how. Look again at verse 28 of Romans 8, but also verse 29. Paul writes this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers and sisters, friends, what is relying on God and not ourselves? What is passing along divine comfort that we've received? What is experiencing divine power so that others can see God in us if not becoming like Jesus? Don't all of those things describe Jesus? That we saw on the screen, those four insights pointing us to Christ. Conformity to the image of Christ is how Paul in this context just sums it up. You want to know what I mean by this generic word good, Paul says? It's about Jesus. It's about becoming like Christ. That is the work that God is doing. And He he is using all things, even your worst thing, even the hard things He is using because He is so powerful. His sovereign reign as King of all creation is so strong that there is nothing that can oppose His purposes and everything must bow and bend to His will in your life. Divine revelation helped Joseph understand how God worked through His worst thing to accomplish the very best thing for himself, for his family, and for a countless number of people in Egypt and in the region who lived, right, who didn't starve to death because God had worked in an amazing way, powerful way. It was divine revelation that helped him understand this. This morning, through the divine revelation given to you, given to us in Scripture, God wants to give you a similar perspective by showing you that the very best thing for you and those in your circle, the very best thing is for you to become more like Jesus. Boy, we can lose sight of that, can't we? The very best thing for you and everyone in your life is for you to become more like Jesus. Do you embrace that? Do you believe that? I hope you do because that's God's purpose in your life. He's not just taking the time on Sunday morning where you come and listen to the word or the Bible study that you're doing at home or the Christian radio you listen to or the Christian program you're watching or a conference you go to or whatever. Those things that seem explicitly uh, faith forming right in us. Uh, he's Yeah, he's using those to, I'm growing in my faith in this way. He's certainly using those things, and we need those things 
But this says he's using every single thing in your life to accomplish that one purpose to make you more like Jesus. Are you fighting that this morning? Or have you traded that incredible purpose for some tame counterfeit of the Christian life? He is calling you to something glorious. And he wants you to see everything in your life because he's using everything in your life for this purpose. He wants you to see that. He wants you to see everything in your life in that way, especially those worst things. What happens when we don't have that perspective? Well, to the degree that this new perspective, the, this new perspective we're talking about from God, to the degree that this is the truth, and it is, it is the truth, to the degree that we do not have this perspective, we invariably are believing lies about our worst thing. I guarantee you, to the degree that you don't have this perspective about your worst thing in your life, you believe a lie about it. Or lies. Plural. I, I, I'm just stating that as a matter of fact, because it is. I'm not even going to debate that with you. You believe lies unless you've received the truth. And Christ came to set us free with the truth, didn't he? And that's what he wants to do in you this morning. There are people who, when I talk about the worst thing in their life, it's not just a far-off kind of thing that happened years ago or maybe recently they went through. It is something that can oftentimes hold such incredible sway over how you see yourself in the world. It, it torments people. It shapes their identity. It poisons the way they think about others. It poisons all sorts of things. But God is saying, I have freedom for you, my child. I have healing for you, my child. And it's found in Christ and the purposes I am working out in Christ, my sovereign purposes, so that you now see that worst thing as the best thing because I'm in it, my child. And I've always been in it, working to accomplish something glorious. You know why we can say all of this? Because Jesus Christ suffered the worst thing that anyone could ever suffer, ever. There's no worse thing than what Jesus suffered on the cross. You know that, right? Because Jesus suffered the worst thing for you. God can work the very best thing, and He is for all who belong to Jesus. Christ suffered the worst affliction anyone will ever suffer, and we rejoice this morning together as His people that His suffering was not in vain. Amen? Not at all. Not in any way. No, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. The people who crucified Jesus meant it for evil. Those who were jealous of Jesus meant it for evil. Those who betrayed Jesus meant it for evil. But God meant it for good.
God meant it for good. In fact, the greatest good. There is no greater good than what the worst thing. There is no worse thing than that worst thing. And there is no greater good than what that worst thing accomplished because God meant it for good. Because God is sovereign. Because He is king. Because He is love. Because He is glorious. In fact, this greatest good through the cross and resurrection, we can now walk with God in truth forever and ever. We began this morning talking about your worst thing, but we finished talking about the best thing. I told you I was going to lift your spirits. I know it started rocky there, that one end of the spectrum, but we have moved full tilt to the other end because if you belong to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, then the best thing is that God is in and has always been in your worst thing. And if He's in your worst thing, He's in all of it. He's in everything. And as we saw with Joseph this morning, just grasping that and believing it, just gaining that new perspective through the work of His Spirit in you, changes everything. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.